So, as we can see, the ship, yes, the ship, ends its life where it began, in Sun Valley. <clears throat> I, uh, I have to admit, I find that rather amusing. <laughs> For those of you not aware, the area where they filmed this episode is the same general area, same region, that they filmed the, the ship. The episode where they found this ship. Anyway. <clears throat> I do also have to give special props for the actors, and I feel really bad for them because, um, well, it got to be an average of about 95 degrees, that's 35 degrees Celsius, uh, going up to 105, which is about 40, going up to, and at its peak, and I wrote the number down here, 128 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 53 degrees Celsius. Now, I want you to mention trying to act in that while wearing a uniform, while wearing Jim Hadar makeup and prosthetics. Yeah, that that doesn't sound particularly fun. I uh, feel very, very bad for the crew on this this shoot. We also, however, get to see Phil Morris again. You may or may not recognize him. He's been I, I've actually talked about him before, believe it or not, in the episode One Small Step over on Voyager. Uh, he played John Kelly over in that one. He plays Remediclon in this episode, and he does a damn good job of it. I mean, he's a vet. He knows what he's doing, and he does a good job of guest starring. I just wish you'd seen more of him, but you know how that works. So, there's two plot, A plot, B plot, and probably for the first real time in Star Trek history, I don't mind there being multiple distinguished, unconnected plots going through these Star Trek episodes. Why? Because it's more like we're seeing different perspectives of a long-term story arc. When you do string continuity, the A plot, B plot thing works a little bit better because it's not actually a B plot. It's another plot that is happening alongside another plot because multiple stories happen at the same time, right? So we see the people back on the station and we see the people, you know, out on the ship, right? In fact, if you remember, I posited this exact same general idea back in TNG that the camera doesn't always have to follow the crew, that it could, or that is to say, it doesn't always have to follow the Enterprise. It could, it could switch over to them doing something else over there. And I actually really liked that idea. I have to admit, I didn't even realize in hindsight that that, that I, the idea I was mentioning is something DS9 actually did with this seven-parter figure. Anywho, so we're going to cover these one by one first. We see O'Brien and the damn generators and the damn thing. And and then, of course, you know, Nog. This damn thing! Watch your mouth! Um, so, we the episode very quickly establishes Remediclon. He mentions... Uh, in fact, I wrote it down. I was wrong to... Right, right. He was... So, he questioned the, the Vorta, Keevan, about whether or not they should enter the nebula. And Keevan was like, No, you're wrong and stupid. Follow my orders without question. It's interesting because that really does establish the point. In fact, it, it shows us Remediclon questioning a stupid order, which is how he'll go out as well. Although, when he goes out, he doesn't question it. Remediclon actually has a weird character arc during this, and I want to talk more about that later. But we certainly have a unique challenge for the crew here, don't we? They're stuck on a planet, which thankfully has a breathable atmosphere, could you imagine? While in an uncharted nebula... Well, in an area that's basically either in Dominion space or right next to Dominion space, depending. So, um, not exactly a fun scenario. And I find it amusing that so often Star Trek treats these kind of situations as if they're not as horrifyingly desperate as they could be, because it's okay, all we have to do is get a transponder going. 
when in truth, what could have very likely happened is they could have spent literally the rest of their lives here, um, as, as short as those may be, because at some point they're going to run out of resources, and that's going to be that. Anyways, <clears throat> so Terry Farrell had to stay inside because of a skin condition, right? I'm sure you've all heard that. I was very curious about that, so I decided to look into it. You know what I found? Nothing. I barely even found references to the skin condition issue. Just a few brief mentions in the D Space Nine Companion and a couple of interviews saying that she had a skin, uh, basically a allergy to sunlight, sunlight, which meant she couldn't be outside for this shoot. I've never heard of that personally, at least as a long-term condition. Maybe she had a skin rash at the time of shooting. Maybe it's just overexposure. Maybe it's actually a heat thing. Like, I, I, I forgive me for pausing over this, and it's not like I'm accusing the, the, them of being lying. It's just the lack of information is puzzling to me. And well, this isn't the first time I've had a problem with having a lack of information when it comes to Terry Farrell, but we'll cover that in... Got like 15 episodes or something like that. It's a while from now. Anyways, so she had to stay inside. That that sucks. At least they did decide to write her in as a character more than not. It would have been easy to basically write her out of the episode, which, you know, at, at that point, I mean, why even have her be there? They do have a small acknowledgement of Impact Noir because, as I've mentioned, we're in season six and seven where continuity has started becoming more of a thing again. Uh, speaking of which, Keevan, the, the, the Vorta in this episode, will also be seen again. So that's a nice bit of continuity as well. Recurring. Uh, there's this nice bit. They capture Nog and Garak, bring them back. And it's funny because if they hadn't captured Garak, this might have gone much, much worse. But Garak, well, he's smart. And he also acknowledges, or I should say recognizes, what the Vorta's after. Do you have a doctor? And Garak looks thoughtful, and pauses to consider for a moment before saying yes. In short, I'm not sure anyone else would have been of the same mindset to go ahead and willingly give up that information about their composition to save their lives, for the pragmatic purposes, in other words. Now, uh, <laughs> so then he sends out the troops to go scout, and the troops are firing, oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god. Because of lack of white. <laughs> Once again, I find myself amused at how the lack of white problem tends to cause more issues than it does solve them. The last time I brought that up, uh, several people in the comments section mentioned that the founders probably want the, you know, the Gemini to go nuts when they lose white. Because now it's a nice, big, obvious sign of, yeah, you screwed with us, screw you. And they're probably right. But it is amusing to me how much that causes more problems than solutions. If the Jem'Hadar, are, you know, quietly shut down or otherwise were fully functional, the, the Dominion, as a concept, probably would have won this particular engagement. They would have gotten Cisco and the others as prisoners. So, pretty big win for the Dominion. But no. No, they go nuts. So, <laughs> Cisco prods Rometaclon about the Vorta, and... I love how he demands the Jem'Hadar's assurance. This leads to an interesting point. Keevan has no leadership skills at all. He has done nothing to actually lead the people. Now, that makes sense. After all, Jem'Hadar are barely people, and 
Vorta don't need to be good leaders. They need to be good administrators. They need to be good manipulators. But they are not required to actually have any real charisma or connection to their unit or their soldiers. Why would they? Right? I mean, you don't care about the Legos that you put together, right? So, it makes sense that he, in this episode, and he's actually very well presented, as weird as that may sound. He's no Wayun, don't mistake me, but he is constantly trying to manipulate the circumstance to basically engineer a one-way-or-another-I-win kind of a scenario. And, well, he absolutely does not have the loyalty of his men, except for the fact that he kind of does... This brings us to the conclusion, although quick side note, uh, Kelly, or not Kelly, excuse me, Garak says, you know, O'Brien actually says there's rules even in war, and Garak says, no, 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 humans have rules in war that make victory much more difficult. Uh, I've actually heard a lot of people debate that topic for a long time. Um, one of my own viewers is, is fond of saying that the mere fact that there are rules of warfare is kind of a sign of how messed up humanity is, that we have, it's such a common t practice that we have to establish, okay, this, these are the common grounds of war. I have to admit, though, uh, this is a very complex and complicated topic that, uh, frankly, I don't think I'm qualified to talk about. There's a lot to unpack there about pragmatism, about ideology, about whether it's worth it to do the right thing, even though you lose your own troops, which is, by the way, what Cisco actually does in this episode. He does lose a man in the final uh, salvo with uh, Jem'Hadar. Or, if you should take every method possible to victory and screw morality and ethics, which also will probably have long-term consequences after the fighting is finally done, there's a lot to be unpacked there. And, like I said, I'm, I'm not qualified. All I want to mention is that it is interesting to me that Cisco bears it down to uh, something I've heard actual military personnel say, us or them, that in a lot of engagements, obviously you don't want to be a horrible person, you don't want to do horrible things, but if the engagement boils down to we live or they do, you choose we, the end. And that itself is kind of an unfortunate statement about the nature of humankind, if I'm being so blunt. Regardless, Cisco does choose us. One interesting thing, though, Cisco doesn't like it. Now, that's relevant, because I actually have a, a, a lorium, which I call the Justice Lords versus the Cisco. And for those of you who don't want, look at that, and I don't actually get to bring it up that often, although I'll be bringing up the, the name, the, the episode that really uh, got me that lorium uh, this season. But the, re the, the point of that lorium is a Justice Lord would have absolutely no hesitation about doing the necessary thing. Pure pragmatism. They wouldn't feel bad about it. It's the correct thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Of course we're going to brutally butcher the Jem'Hadar. The Cisco will go ahead and go forward with the plan, but the Cisco won't like it. The Cisco will, in fact, hate it and will, you know, have some kind of actual emotional, ethical, moral quandary there. They will still do it, but they will not s tell themselves this is the right thing to do and not have any issues with doing it. And you can see the distinction there. Both accomplish the same action, but from very different perspectives. So Cisco pulls the Cisco. There's a reason I call it that. And they go out, and Cisco finally just can't take it. He's like, wait, I want to talk. Now, Star Trek is infamous for having the third option. And I've said before, I'm actually okay with the third option. 
But in this case, the third option is offered and then rejected. They try talking through it. They try negotiating. They try finding some kind of common ground. But just this once, they manage to mutually have respect and understanding for each other and then still go back to kill each other. I don't have words to properly explain how powerful that is to me. There's this wonderful bit, and again, huge props to Phil Morris as Remetaclon. He is a Vorta. I am a Jem'Hadar. That is the order of things. Are you really willing to give your life for the order of things? It is not my life to give, and it never was. That's messed up. And so, in anti-typical Star Trek fashion, the third option is reached and then rejected. Yeah. You'll notice how close Cisco came to just gunning Keevan down, by the way. Just, yeah. Meanwhile, over on Deep Space Nine, Kira wakes up, looks at herself in the mirror, smiles, hops in a, uh, it's not an elevator, it's a, it's a turbo, there we go, turbo shaft, uh, with several Jem'Hadar and Cardassians. Goes up to Ops. Mavic offers her a cup of what I assume is Ractogeno. She starts going through the reports. Now, this scene that I just described happens immediately after the crash, where the rest of the crew are on planet hell, right? So the immediate visual distinction is present. She's just going about a normal day. And they make, make it very clear, this isn't like a hardship. It's not even boring. It's just a Tuesday. And it's very hard to hit that slice of normal but not boring. It, it, it's, it's kind of a unique little perspective, but I think they nail it quite well. This is just Tuesday, basically. Which I know is funny because these come out on Tuesday, but you get the idea. So, okay, she drinks, sure. Then Jake starts to interview her and Odo about the Dominion, and she starts saying, okay, look. Bajor has no trade with any outside world or any outside anything. So in order to continue to remain functional, we need certain technological and industrial things in order to help us continue to function. We need repairs, we need supplies. We've been cut off from trade. Now, everything she says there is absolutely true. And that's what makes it so insidious. Because she's right. Bajor does need this kind of aid. And so the Dominion being the only organization that can give that aid, well, that's just sort of logical, right? Once again, we see the whole rules of warfare concept, theme, kind of coming into play here, because the reason that it bothered Cisco was not because of any practical, mundane, physical need reason. It was what I, I usually call an intangible uh, or a, a non-literal reason. It was considered morally or ethically questionable. So you could see how Kira in this situation and the Bajorans in general would find accepting aid, find, what is basically financial aid from the Dominion to be morally and ethically repugnant but also pragmatically necessary. And you can see the parallels between the two and how horribly messed up the situation really is and how, well, if I might be so bold, this is an aspect of warfare I don't often see in fiction. I mean, yes, there's the heroes and there's the, there's the, the loss and there's the, the horror as AR-558 will get across later. But you don't often see the insidious 
normal, calm, almost mundane alterations to fabric of infrastructure and society that tend to happen as a direct consequence of being in a state of war. Remember, after all, the reason Bejor has to rely on the Dominion and no one else is because there's a reason they're not trading with everyone else. It's because they are effectively in Dominion territory. They are a non-aggression non pact with the Dominion. Who are they going to trade with? The Dominion is directly responsible for effectively cutting them off. In short, imagine if a country in real life, no, no RL politics, just imagine if Maidupistan went after Maidupistan 2, they're both countries, and Maidupistan decided to put an embargo on Maidupistan 2. But then Maidupistan 2 needed resources and supplies, so Maidupistan says, oh, we'll send you, we'll send you relief effort. <laughs> Think about that. <clears throat> So Jake interviews Kira and Odo, and they, this is not the first time, but she finds out about the protest from, I didn't write her name down, oh my god, the Vedic lady, hang on, I'm going to look it up really quick, because the actress actually does a good job, even though she only has two scenes, uh, she does a good job with the role. Is this her? Yasin? I don't remember how they pronounced it. She's played by, uh, played by Lillian Chauvin, and she does do a very good job with the role, given that she only has the two scenes. But the Vedic, okay? Vedic Yassim. I'm going to assume it's Yassim. She says, okay, we need to protest this. Evil must be opposed. We have to do something to contest this. So, if you don't want me to go and, you know, do an actual public protest, uh, what are you doing to oppose the Dominion? Now, what I like most about this scene is it would be very easy to write Yassim as unreasonable or short-sighted or even violent. I mean, these are Bajorans, for God's sakes. I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, think about how the Bajorans have been portrayed for years. The second episode of DS9 ever was about an extremist Bajoran trying to, to, to take out the wormhole, for God's sakes. So... It would be very easy to write her as such, but instead she is portrayed as someone who says, okay, well, you don't want me to do this public protest, so what are we doing instead? Because we have to do something. The Dominion is evil. And she says that so matter-of-factly because she's right. This is something that I find fascinating about these kind of stories because you have to, in my opinion, you have to take into account both the tangible and the intangible concepts here. Tangibly speaking... The Dominion is here. They have this occupation. Bajor is reliant upon them. The end. Intangibly, the Dominion is actively trying to conquer basically the entire quadrant and is pushing for mass destruction and uh, reestablishment of founder control and everyone under them being literally, no literally nothing more than digits on a board. As, I've, as I think I've highlighted many, many times, the Dominion really is evil. Like, just absolutely evil. So, she's right. So we have to do something about this. The intangible reasons demand they do something about this. So what are we doing about this? And it is Kira who starts to argue, well, you know, a protest will make things worse, and it'll just, it'll just cause a security crackdown. And if we go ahead and decide to not do this, then we're not going to have people. These people are going to go, and they're going to do their job, and they're going to leave. I don't understand why this is such a big issue. So the medic's like, okay. So, 
as much as I love the upcoming scene, it's actually it's a, there's a little bit of a plot hole there because she somehow manages to get up into position and get the rope ready and tie it around her without anyone noticing, including Kira and Odo, one of which is known for being very observant, the other one is an ex-gorilla, who are right there in visual range of her. But sure, whatever, let's just skip by that for the moment. Because then she stands there and she says, evil must be opposed. And then she kills herself. Credit to Star Trek Deep Space Nine for having the balls to do that. And I know that sounds like a strange thing, but you have to remember the era of television this is coming out in and the nature of how much or little Paramount in particular was allowing several of its shows and, and, and properties to do at this point in time. The fact that they got away with that is actually astonishing to me. Now, they don't actually show it, and nor should they, to be blunt, but the fact that they actually had that happen, yeah. It's very quiet, too. And then the next day starts. Kira looks in the mirror, gets on the turbo lift, is offered a cup of Ractagino by Mavic, and she just snaps. I've, I've given much praise to Nana Visitor and her acting many times before. This is a good example because you can sort of see how so mundanely normal it is that she just loses it, but not in a kind of a way. It's, it's not a demonstrable way. She just, you can just see her mind snap and her face, her facial expression just noticeably, demonstrably changes. And she just, she has to leave the ops because of how much this is getting to her because she was just offered a cup of coffee by the enemy. Because, make no mistake, the Dominion is her enemy. So, she starts talking about being a collaborator, how she is a collaborator now. This is a topic we'll address when we get to episode 17. I looked it up, of season 6. Uh, Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night, or whatever it's called. But, all I want to say right now is that Kira, for intangible reasons, can no longer accept this. Because she believes that being a collaborator is the worst thing you can do. And you can kind of see why a Bajoran would see that. But what's interesting to me is that when she said something to the Vedic earlier. And she was right to say it. This isn't the Cardassian occupation. Things are different. And so she can't approach resistance in the same way. She can't. And, spoiler alert, she won't. It's, uh... It's going to be interesting, seeing how this develops. Final note, before I conclude. This is the last time I'll bring this up, but I mentioned how I love the fact that this is string continuity. One of the most interesting aspects of it is they don't do a last time on Star Trek The Next Generation, or whatever, right? They don't do a previously on kind of a thing. They just have the episode happen immediately after the previous episode. Just food for thought of the way they were presenting this. I have to admit, if they kept doing the last time for all seven episodes, it would get a little old. Regardless, that has been Rocks and Shoals. I like this entire seven-episode arc, if it's not obvious. But if memory serves, the next one is Sons and Daughters, the one-week point of the, of the entire arc. So we'll see what I think of it going back through next time. See you around, guys.